Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. The scripture reading for this Sunday begins with Genesis 1, 26-27 and verse 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then in Luke 15, 11 through 24, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Karen. This morning I want to begin by just considering the power of story. What is the power of stories in our life? Stories help us uh, make sense of this world. Stories help us feel like we're not alone. Stories kind of give us a roadmap of understanding how this world works. Uh, This is why we love stories. They wake us up to what might be. So that being the case, I want you to imagine, if you will, 3,000 years ago in, in what is now the Middle East, a father and son or a mother and daughter are sitting on a hillside. And it's nighttime. They're looking up at the stars. And the child looks at the parent and says, the, the huge existential question, how did we get here? Like, how did not only we get here, but how did everything get here? What does the parent do? Well, the parent probably is going to turn to a story. And then, 3,000 years ago, they would say, well, let me tell you a story of how we got here. Before we were here, before this world was here, there were gods that existed, and these gods hated each other. These gods were always at battle with one another. They lusted for power, and they continually at war against one another. 
There is one God by the name of Marduk. He's the God like you know. He's the God of the winds and the storm. And he was going to battle with this goddess named Tiamat. She's the goddess of the sea, the oceans. And he was going to battle against her because she had destroyed his father. And so in this huge, uh, this huge heavenly battle, it looked like Tiamat was about to devour Marduk. And then Marduk sent into her mouth winds, pulled out a bow and arrow, and shot her through the heart. And then he filleted Tiamat into two pieces. Good story, right? Two pieces. And Marduk lifted up one piece and made it the heavens, the stars, the planets that we see. And then with the second piece, he pushed it down and formed it together. And that's where this world came from. That's where everything you see came from. It was from that other piece of Tiamat. And the child goes, yeah, it makes sense, right? But, but where did we come from? Ah, so Tiamat's body had blood on it, and the blood started to dry, and each drop of blood became humanity. This is where we came from. Now, if stories are powerful, I want you to think about how that story would create a framework for this whole world and give you purpose and meaning. Think about that. If you really believe that story, that we as humanity, we came as an afterthought, we're a mistake, we're unintentional, we were born from violence and conflict of this like heavenly battle that was going on. We came from chaos. And it really gives us no sense of purpose or significance of why we're here in this world. That story would be powerful. That was the story of the Babylonian creation that they, they were telling 3,000 years ago. And that is so different than the story that we read in Genesis we see a totally different story with God of how we came into this world. We weren't born out of conflict and battle, but we were born from a sense of unity and peace. We weren't born from chaos. We were born from like this order and abundance. We see each day there's order and then there's abundance and order and then abundance. And we see in this story of creation in Genesis that we weren't created out of this heavenly conflict, but the total opposite. We were born from heavenly unity, that the gods were not at battle. The gods for all of time, for all of existence, were in perfect peace and unity and harmony. Like, that's a totally different story. That God did not create us accidentally. God didn't create us because God was bored, (laughs) had nothing else to do, needed some amusement. God created us out of an overflow of being in perfect relationship. So this is why it makes sense for you and I, as we see in this passage, we were created in the image of God. Have you ever noticed in this passage in Genesis, the plural pronoun, let us make mankind in our image. In all the other days of creation, we don't see that plural pronoun, but here on the sixth day, when humanity was created, it was us and it was our. This is pointing us to the fact that we have been created in the, in the image of a relational God. So therefore, the only way for us to discover who we are is in the context of relationships with one another, but more importantly, the relationship with God whose image we've been created. That we've been created in this image of God. 
Now, this, again, this story helps us make sense of the world and makes a sense of ourselves. And this story is good news. This is the reason why it's good news, is that your value is not tied to your income, not tied to your family, not tied to your status in this world. It's not tied to your, your race, your ethnic background. Your identity and your value is tied to your maker. And that changes everything. That gives us such liberation for our own self that we have nothing to prove because we have been created in the image of God. But this also changes how we see one another. This means if this is true, that we've been created in the image of God, so is your neighbor's. So is everyone in this room, so as it is with your enemy, with everyone in this world, with the men in Travis, country, Travis County State Prison on the other side of Austin who are sitting there day in and day out struggling with a sense of value. They too have been created in the image of God. Refugees created in the image of God. Children, unwanted created in the image of God. This changes our perspective on everything. And not only that, but God sees humanity and goes beyond just saying that it's been created in the image of God, so there's value in that. First words are important. Many times you right here have experienced that first words will like change the state of your relationship. Like if you have a bad first word, it's hard to break free from that first uh, encounter, right? Some of you maybe have, are trying to work through the first words that someone else said here in this room. You had a weird first experience. You don't know what to make of them. First words matter. And think about this. Think about the first words that humanity ever heard. So God created each of these days and said, okay, light, light is good. Uh, the seas and the sky, oh, that's good. And then here on the sixth day, God saw all that he met, made, and it was so very good. The Hebrew for this phrase, very good, that word tov is the goodness that we've talked about each day. Today is tov tov, double tov, <laughs> so very good. What God is saying is like there is this culmination, there's this like crescendo of goodness in creation and then humanity is created in God's image and humanity is in God's view and God looks at it and says, oh, that is so very good. And this echo of goodness has been in our hearts and our souls ever since, wondering if our creator could see us as good wondering if, if we could be good in this life. And we see here the voice of God still ringing in our souls so many years later. You are so good. Many of us struggle with that, right? Many of us struggle with that. But the story goes on not only to talk about our original goodness, and by the way, a lot of times in Christian circles, um, we hear the phrase, the original sin, like how everything fell apart, or total depravity. These are all terms that in you know, Christian circles they talk about. What's rarely talked about is original goodness, that you were created and intended for goodness, for wholeness, that this is God's intent for your life. But unfortunately, the story goes on to explain how it all fell apart, how pain and conflict and chaos entered the world. There is an enemy to God's plan, and again, 
first words are really, really important. So Adam and Eve were created. They experienced wholeness in relationship with God in the garden. And then this day came, we find in Genesis 3.1. And notice the first words the serpent said to humanity. Did God really say? So the serpent came in, and the first words the serpent said was, did God really say you couldn't eat from this tree? Do you see the strategy that, that, that the serpent had? Is Did God really mean that? Can you really trust God's word? Could, do you really think that he meant that? Do you see how like that subtle, that subtle question gives birth to something really challenging? And for us, you know, for us, we might feel that question in our life. Did, do you, can you really trust God? Can you really trust God's word to you? And that slight question turned into distrust, and distrust turned into rebellion, and rebellion turned into a tragic story that we see played out in our world. And we've been questioning this voice ever since. And this tragedy led forth that humanity experienced brokenness and shame. And by the way, you were never created for shame. You weren't. Yet in this response, this moment, shame, they, they did what we probably do we, when we feel exposed. We cover ourselves and we hide. And that's exactly what happened in Genesis 3, 8, and 11. Uh, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I love this picture because it, it sounds so relational, that God is just walking through the garden in the cool of the day, to be with humanity. Like it reminds me of when I was growing up, my mom would put on her purple velour outfit and we'd go take a walk together. And, uh, and this for my mom was like the sweetest time for us because we would just, she would get me and we would have to walk together and I couldn't be distracted by anything else. And I know for my mom and eventually for me, that was like such sweet time together. And we have here a picture of God the Father creator, walking in the cool of the day, and notice the first words that God says after the fall. Verse 9, where are you? Such words of tragedy. God's looking at humanity going, where are you? You're, you're supposed to be with me, and you're not. Where are you? And they responded, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Notice this is the, the fruit of the fall. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. This idea of being in relationship with God was not, we weren't meant to be afraid of that. We weren't meant to feel exposed and we weren't meant to hide from God. And something was lost. Our reflecting the likeness of our maker was absolutely destroyed and shattered. But God's intent still moves on. You see, this is so important for us and especially the this, this sixth day of creation it's important for us to learn that God does not like to lose things. God, God doesn't like to lose things. And so we find in this moment that something was lost. So what does God do? God begins a grand rescue mission to find that which was lost. And Jesus came for that very purpose. This is a beautiful passage in Luke 15. It's like the culmination of Luke's gospel. And uh, Jesus, for some reason, he's in a storytelling mode. He just feels like telling stories. Why? His stories help us make sense of this world. 
And the Pharisees were like the religious rulers of that day. They were the prominent religious people. They asked Jesus, how come you spend so much time with the sinners, with those people who are the furthest from the synagogue, furthest from being God's chosen people? And instead of just telling them, Jesus slips into stories. He tells three stories all about things lost. He tells a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then finally a lost child. The story begins much like the garden in Genesis. When they were in perfect relationship, they had perfect community in this father's household, two brothers, they had this beautiful estate. The son had no need in his life. But after a while, he started looking for something that wasn't yet his and grasping for it. And eventually, it so consumed him that he took the courage enough to go to his father and said, Father, I'm ready to have my inheritance now. Which, in other words, is saying, God, uh, Father, I'm, I'm tired of you still being alive. <laughs> I'd rather have your things than have you. If that wouldn't break any parent's heart, I don't know what would. Uh, especially if you have nothing to leave your child, I'd be like, sorry, Dylan. Uh, <laughs> this is going to break my heart in yours, but how you like me to some debt? Uh, so... Uh, So in this moment, the father, I mean, he had to sell off a portion of his estate. And think about the shame of this moment. He had literally had to sell off part of his land to give it as an inheritance to his son. And so he gave it to his son, and the son disappeared. He was lost. He went into a foreign land and started to squander the uh, example of his father's life. He began to just spend, and it was amazing how quickly it went And then for the first time in his life, he became in need. In verse 14 of Luke 15, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. It's amazing, like, this is how sin works in our life, that when we give ourselves to it, it actually is satisfying for a little bit. But then there's a time of famine, and there's always a time of famine when we experience being bankrupt and empty, And so, uh, in verse 15 and 16, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the field. Notice this. What does the son do? Out of all the different occupations, all the different means of, of being able to care for himself, he went to feed pigs. For a young Jewish man, there's nothing worse for him to do. Pigs were like an example of what was deemed unclean in their society. And out of everything, he went and worked with pigs. (laughs) which for me makes me think that he had embraced so much shame that he thought he deserved the worst of the worst. Like he actually deserved to go like the lowest of the low. And even then, as, as he was feeding pigs in verse 16, he longed to fill his stomachs with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And in this moment, he probably felt much like Adam and Eve exposed, vulnerable, naked, in need. And we too find ourselves empty, empty and bankrupt with cracked lips, wondering how in the world did we ever get here in this foreign land. But he remembers. He comes to his senses in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he remembers how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I want you to give me a new name. I'm, I'm, not, you're, I'm not your son anymore. That's been lost. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And as he's walking, I like to imagine his journey home. I like to imagine him knocking off the clumps of mud on his, on his outfit as he's walking, fixing his hair, working out his script of what he's going to say, practicing it with reverence and with shame and humility, knowing he's not going to make eye contact with his father, expecting his father to do what this world would do. And what is that? You are no longer my son. You are my slave. And until you prove how sorry you are, you're not going to enter my household. Right? Isn't that how this world would write this story? This amount of distrust. I don't know if I can trust you. You might just want my things again. But that's not how God writes this story. That's not how this story is with God. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. On this journey home, before he had reached, before he had, had proven how sorry he was, on the journey, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I like to think that this was not a fluke, that the father saw him. I, I like to imagine the father waking up in the morning and spending the end of the day on a bench on the edge of his estate, looking down the road, hoping, waiting, watching. And as he's out, he out in the fields and he's talking to his servants, he's having a hard time making eye contact because he keeps on looking down the road, just maybe. Almost like the echo of God's voice in the garden. Where are you? Where is my son tonight? Where, what, what is he doing? Where is he? And so when this son is far away, as he's practicing his script, the father saw him, and he was filled with compassion. Hope bursted forth in his heart, and he ran to his son. Men in this culture did not run. They didn't lift up their robes and <laughs> run to their son. It was seen as like just kind of disgraceful. But this father's love overwhelmed him. And I like imagining the son in this journey practicing his script and all of a sudden seeing this older man running towards him and wondering, who in the world is that? Who is this older man? And then he sees, I think that might be my father. And then there's the second set of questions. Does he look angry, right? Like, does he, is he carrying any weapon or anything? Should I run away the other direction? And before he knew what to do, he was in his father's arms. He was in his father's embrace. And the son said to him his script he was, that he practiced many times over. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Give me another name. That, that identity is done. It's almost like the father interrupts. But the father said to the people around him, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. What's happening here is what happens on the sixth day of our own beginnings is what happens here is that God 
restores us to God's original intent. What we see in this parable that Jesus is telling is, is we see restoration. It sees the fall is not going to have the final say. I, I'm going to lift this back up. Notice what the father does. Three different things. Give him the best robe. Imagine after being in a distant land and feeding pigs and having nothing. If you don't have anything to eat, you can't provide yourself a, a new outfit. And so in that, the father gives him a covering. It gives him this beautiful covering and reinstates him. But then he gives him a ring. And a ring in this day and age is much like a signet ring. This gives you authority like for make contracts, to be able to, to make decisions for the family, that not only I'm going to cover you and give you reinstated beauty, but also I'm going to give you your authority again. You are my son. You're not a servant. This is who you are. And so he reinstates the authority. But not only that, and this is crucial, this maybe is overlooked oftentimes, but he wants to have a feast. Why is that? If you or I were that child that came back home and full of disgrace, we probably would want to hide out in our room, right? And the father says, no, no, no. You're going to be reinstated to this community. This isn't going to be awkward. This is going to be good because my son is home now. He was lost. Now he's found. Of course we're going to celebrate. The same beauty and authority in community we saw in Genesis 1, and it was lost. The beauty of humanity, the authority to co-labor with God, the community of being with God and one another, all is reinstated here in this little parable. And the important thing to remember is, why did Jesus tell this parable? Why did he tell this story? Because the Pharisees were wondering, why are you spending time with all the sinners? And what Jesus is saying here is something was lost a long time ago, and God doesn't like losing things. You see, what happens in Jesus is God lost something, but Jesus came to find it. Jesus came to restore it. Jesus was, as in this story, he was the older brother that never was, who watched the pain of the father, seeing this loss in, the, in his life, and seeing this loss in the community. And, and this older son, Jesus said, I can't handle you seeing you in pain. I can't handle seeing you losing something like this. Send me. Send me to the distant land. Send me to the foreign country that I could find your lost child and bring him home. Send me over there. I don't care how much it costs me. I don't care if it costs me my own life. It's time for your child to be brought home. It's time for them to remember who they are. Jesus said it even more clearly in Luke 19.10. When he said his purpose. For the son of man came to find and restore the lost. So God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that anyone who believes in him shall be restored, shall be renewed, find life eternal. That's what happens on the sixth day. We've gone through each day of creation. We've experienced the light in God's, in God's story. We've experienced the sifting that God does, the seeds and the seasons. We've faced our monsters. And here on the sixth day of, of this journey together, what we find is this journey really is about you. 
that the greatest work that God's doing in this world is restoring you and I to the people that we were created to be. That once again, we could experience the voice of God looking at us and saying, you are again good. That in Jesus, that God sees us and says, you, you're so very good. Do you actually believe that? Do you believe like the all-powerful God like looks at you and actually says, you are good? What voices compete in your mind and your hearts? Another way to say it is, what fig leaves have you covered yourself with? Where have you been hiding that competes with the voice of God in your life saying that you truly are good? The reality in God's story is you are not defined by your brokenness, your shame, You're not defined by your regrets in life. You're also not defined by your successes, your holiness. You're not defined by any of that. You are defined by your maker. You are who he says you are, and that's the end of the story. But the sixth day, we actually have to to live in that. We actually have to, to believe that. So now at this time, I want to encourage you, when you came in today, you, you had a, a name tag. I want you to get that out if you can. Once again, what we find in this story is that God lost something and he wants it back. The thing he wants back is you. He wants you to experience the purpose that God has for you. He wants you to receive the name that was always in God's heart and mind for you. So I want you to hold that name tag in your hand, and we're just going to have a little time of just prayer to God. And the main question for our time in prayer is, God, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? You might feel like the prodigal who you've left home and you have found yourself in another distant land, broken and empty. And on that journey, you've probably acquired some other identity, some other name. And you have a hard time really believing that God sees you and calls you good. I know in my life, uh, I was a fearful middle school child, hiding in the band hall, eating lunch by myself. That's a little bit of my story. I remember one time walking through a parking lot and finding on the ground this little um, bracelet, and on it said, underachiever. Uh, And I put that on my wrist and I wore it for years because I was afraid. And I was hiding, and I just didn't, I didn't want to be exposed. And so I just took on that identity myself. Another friend this week, he said uh, uh, his parent always called them the black sheep of the family. Always. And after a while, he just learned to accept that as this is who I am. In our journeys, we've acquired names. We've learned how to hide. We've learned how to cover ourselves. And the work of the sixth day is that God says, No, no, no. You need to learn who you truly are. So let us go to God in prayer in this moment. I just want you to have some time with God and just ask the simple question, God, what name might you have for me? Would you, like this prodigal son, make me come to my senses? Would you remind me? Would you speak into this moment?
maybe what you need right now in your life is to see the love of God like this father chasing you down the road, watching for you, ready to embrace you and reinstate you. Maybe that's your story today. Just just open hands, receive it. Maybe you've never taken your first steps in experiencing God's embrace in your life. You've never said yes to God's grace and love and you need to do it today. Just with open hands, just say, God, I I need you today. Will you cleanse me? Will you remind me who I am? I want you all to hear a, a word of prophecy written a long time ago, Isaiah 43, 1. I just want you to just hear this just spoken over you. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, your maker, your creator, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. God, may you wake us up. May you allow us to come to our senses that we could once again know who we are in you. For my friends here who are taking the first steps of their journey with you, I pray, God, that you would whisper to them in a million different ways who they are in you and how your love is more powerful than the dirt and the mud of where we've come from, but you've cleansed us and you've called us your own. May it be so for us, Lord. And for us as a community, we pray for restoration with one another, that we could be a people unified in you, in your love, in your mercy, in your grace, and that we could be who you say we are as a church. That we could go into this world declaring that, yes, we have been lost, but God's love has found us and has made us new. We give this to you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.